from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, December 10th. Today, the coronavirus vaccine supply chain, all the ins, outs, and obstacles. Good morning. Today, we will be considering whether to make available to millions of Americans an as-yet investigational vaccine that has been developed, tested, and reviewed in record time, with additional testing still underway in ongoing studies. Today, an FDA advisory committee is meeting to discuss whether to give emergency approval to the first coronavirus vaccine here in the U.S. The American public demands and deserves a rigorous, comprehensive, and independent review of the data. And that's what FDA physicians and scientists, all of us career public health servants, have been doing over days, nights, weekends, and yes, over the Thanksgiving holiday. We have all been hearing about this vaccine, the one developed by Pfizer and BioNTech. It requires two doses. It has to be kept at super cold temperatures. It's apparently 95% effective in preventing people from getting COVID-19. And it's looking likely that the FDA will say, yes, we can start administering this vaccine on an emergency basis. Healthcare workers and people at long-term care facilities first. That decision could come in the next few days or even the next few hours. And when it does, it will set so many wheels into motion. Wheels that have nothing to do with the production of the vaccine itself, but the process of getting those vaccines, in many cases, from a warehouse in Kalamazoo, Michigan, to hospitals and pharmacies all over the country and the world. Some parts of that process are being coordinated at the highest levels of business and government. And some other parts of the process come down to a guy like Harry. Okay, hang on. I just, I just seen something disappear there. There we go. Okay, so I'm going to walk you out. We're going to go look at a dry press right now so you can see it, so you'll know a little bit. This is Harry Keem. He's the owner of Keem & Sons Dry Ice in Akron, Ohio, a business that's been in his family for five generations. I talked to him over Zoom last week. So there's pellets. This is a real tour. Oh, my gosh. That's what the pellet press looks like. That's the two extruders, and we have two of those machines. Wow. They, they come out of chute. That's the actual nugget die plate. It looks like the same thing as a little whatever them... Uh, Doggone it, the things in the kitchen, a kitchen aid. Yes, yes. That, that's what the... So that's where the vaccine ice is going to come out of. Correct. So here, Harry is the dry ice guy. You can hear that he literally calls himself the dry ice guy. And I'm like, they didn't tell me nothing. I'm just a dry ice guy. <laughs> Dry ice is necessary at every stage of the delivery process to keep these vaccines extremely cold. So there are Harry's all over the country, really all over the world, and they can proudly say that they will play a small but indispensable role in this incredibly complicated high-stakes supply chain. <laughs> I don't know about proud. I'm a little excited just to get this off the ground and going just so we can get stuff moving. I may be proud after it's all over and done and we've accomplished what we set out to do on the other end. 
As we wait for the official green light from the FDA to get these vaccinations going, we wanted to go behind the scenes and talk to some of the people who are a part of this whole delivery and distribution process. We wanted to find out what they've been doing to prepare, what they're worried about, and how they're feeling right now. And this whole process, it starts with the box. Who came up with the name The Cool Box? That, you know, it was just me and my team. <laughs> we, in many late hours, we just started calling it the, the cool box. That is Tanya Alcorn, Pfizer's vice president for Biopharma Global Supply Chain. And her team is responsible for this box, more formally known as a shipper, which the vaccines will be traveling in. Or more specifically, the vaccines will be in vials made of shatter-resistant glass that are then packed onto a tray like an egg carton, covered in Pfizer's own dry ice, and then packed inside the cool box. And basically, the whole time that scientists had been working on developing and testing this vaccine, these engineers had been working on the box. So it's about the size of a suitcase, if you kind of picture your suitcase right in the middle. So are we talking like a carry-on suitcase? A little bit bigger than a carry-on. Do they Are they like supposed to sort of be incognito, like secret boxes, or do they have like a big thing that says life-saving COVID vaccine on the side? No, one of the mechanisms to try to avoid theft is not to put a blaring sign on it that says COVID vaccine. Um, the people that need to know, that the people that are handling it know what it is. But yeah, we're not making it um, stand out too much. And this box is critical in making sure that the vaccines remain usable once they leave the warehouse. The the two big features, I will say, that we have developed as part of the shipper is a GPS and temperature control monitor that is embedded and attached as part of the shipper. So 24 hours a day, seven days a week, once the vaccine's in the shipper, we turn the device on and immediately is sending us a GPS and temperature uh, information for that shipper. And then it, it uploads into like a, a, a main database, what we call our control tower. If you almost picture like a, if you're at a, Uh, airport and you have the control tower watching all the planes, we have that watching all the shippers. So there's actually like a person, or it sounds like maybe multiple people, whose job it is to stare at all these shipments going all across the country and make sure that they are okay. You you have it absolutely right. The point of all this tracking is to make sure that the cool box doesn't get lost, that it doesn't get stolen, and that the cool box stays cool. Very, very cool. Negative 112 degrees Fahrenheit. And if it starts to get much warmer, literal alarms go off. Um, and we uh, we have a whole process on escalation. If there's any alerts, um, they get an automated alert. So we have both a digital infrastructure and a human infrastructure keeping eyes on those shippers 24-7. The level of monitoring that Tanya is describing is really important because Pfizer is not delivering most of these vaccines. They are being shipped the same way that you or I ship a birthday present to our distant cousin via FedEx, UPS, or DHL. This is uh, absolutely the largest healthcare logistics problem the world's ever seen. Yeah, I mean, it's on a scale that in its own way rivals World War II when you consider the implications of it. That's Larry St. Ange, president for the Global Life Sciences and the Healthcare Sector at DHL. DHL is responsible for shipping the Pfizer vaccine internationally. Everybody in the world is all going to want this vaccine at the same time. And they're, uh, you know, they're, they're in a deep frozen state ready to go. Pfizer will be ready to ship those, uh, those boxes within hours as soon as they get the green light. So that presents a unique challenge. 
And that means that Larry's people have had to learn exactly how to handle the cool boxes and work with all of its particularities. How much dry ice has to be replenished? How do you monitor the shipment? The cool boxes run on a lithium-ion battery, which means that it has to be turned off when the box is in flight and turned back on when it lands. Is that something that you have practiced, that people have been doing like dry runs to make sure that they know, okay, this is how we use the thing with the timer and the box, and these are all the steps? Yeah, I, I mean, I can't go too much into, into private details, but yes, there's been some test shipments that have moved through the system, and it's certainly something that uh, we're rehearsing and planning for. There's daily activity that's going on. Then there are other delivery challenges. Pfizer wants the cool boxes to fly direct, no layovers that can be avoided, so that kind of limits the flight options. And then there's the issue of all that dry ice. And dry ice, when it's encapsulated in exterior packaging around vials of vaccine, when it burns or consumes itself, it melts, it creates carbon dioxide, a poisonous gas. It's basically the same situation as running a car in a garage with no ventilation, which would clearly not be good for the pilots and the crew on board the plane. So it's classified as a hazardous material. And there are limitations on aircraft in terms of how much dry ice you can put on an aircraft. Dry ice is something that people have to think about at every step of this delivery process. Pfizer has to fill the boxes with dry ice at the beginning. The delivery company, like DHL, they might have to replenish the ice with local suppliers when the box arrives. And some vaccination sites will need to keep using the box for storage and refilling it with ice. And in that case, they will need a dry ice guy like Harry. When did you get the first indication that your business was going to play some kind of role in the pandemic? So we got, I don't want to say a call, but the health departments do come in on a regular basis during the summer to get dry ice to use for mosquito traps. And when the health departments came in, they also, one of them had mentioned that you, they go, you know, the vaccine that's coming out is going to be shipped on dry ice. Hmm. And we were just like, oh, okay, we haven't been notified of anything yet. So that was our first indication. And and then what happened after that? Like, when did you start to realize, like, oh, there's probably going to be a pretty increased demand? About a few weeks later, we got a call from the Ohio Health Department requesting just to see if it was possible or something that we could handle, I guess. And could we deliver it down to Columbus, which is you know, almost two hours south of us, which isn't a big deal. And they, they must have passed the information on to all the local health departments. And then we slowly have been just getting more and more and more of the days. I want to say get closer and closer. We just keep getting more and more calls. And Harry realized that these local health departments that were calling him, they were looking to him for answers. Answers to questions like, how much dry ice will I need? What else do I need to prepare for the vaccine? When do you think that the shipments will be coming? Nobody knows you know, what they're getting how many containers that they are getting, or what it's coming in. Do, when you have those conversations over the phone, how would you describe the people who are on, on the other end? I mean, that's a very good, some of them, a call, and they're like, I'm calling you or emailing you because I was told to. <laughs> and the, this was my homework. <laughs> I'm, I'm setting up what I was told to do. Uh, other ones have, some of the hospitals, like a lady called today, was she was just like, had like, you know, you're asking me now, she had like about 10 questions, 
Some of them I can't answer. I'm not the drug manufacturer. I'm just the dry <laughs> ice guy. Yeah, like you're not, you're, you don't have the answers on how to store and uh, transport this like incredibly sought after vaccine. <laughs> Correct. I'm not the, I'm not the shipper. I'm not the supplier. I'm just the guy who's keeping it frozen. <laughs> The thing is, is that Harry is really worried about how he's going to be able to handle all of this. But he's not really worried about the ice itself. I mean, honestly, it's not that big a deal. Uh, the pellets that they're requesting, that's only you know about five hours of operation to make their 15,000 pounds. Oh, wow. Well, that's good news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I've been telling all the health departments and even some of the local pharmacies that have been calling and other places that have been, I guess, pre-notified that they're getting the vaccines. Production is not going to be the problem that I foresee. The delivery is going to be the problem. Mm. To try to get to all these places is just, that, that's tough. I can't be there all at once. And you know the vaccine is probably going to come all at one time, the initial burst. Mm-hmm. I was just going to ask, how many trucks do you have right now? We have seven. And, and are you thinking of like buying any more for this or like hiring more drivers both if need be if i need to like rent trucks on a temporary basis to do this and get it done we will we deal with enough courier services i i've asked a couple of them i do have a couple other people that we deal with who this is their off season so they're also willing to drive for me if i need them Hmm. so i'm just afraid everybody's going to end up with a vaccine and within 24 hours i'm going to get 100 phone calls that we need it tomorrow well, that's going to be tough for mm-hmm. logistically for me to take and figure that out. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to get the last like four health departments that have just called within the last hour. I was like, you know, please, as soon as you know something that's coming your way, give me some heads up. Because as long as I can get one of them to say, hey, it's coming next Tuesday. And at least I know if it's Tuesday, then I know Monday that I can start production and get stuff more lined up so we don't have to deal with that aspect and have some some stuff ready to go. The challenge with dry ice, though, is that you can't really make it ahead of time because it melts. You can't just leave it on a shelf. And if all these pharmacies and hospitals and health departments are depending on dry ice, they're going to need a new shipment every three to four days. So some places are going for a different solution, one that takes us to another company in Ohio. Now, their strategies with dry ice, and dry ice has, you know, some good short-term benefits, but our device is, is you know, if you've got vaccines that uh, aren't going to be administered, uh, you know, overnight or over the next five or 10 days, our device basically is, is the right device. That is Dusty Tenney, the CEO of Sterling Ultra Cold in Athens, Ohio. His company makes a thing that basically every health department in the country wants to have right now, an ultra-cold freezer. It spans anywhere from minus 20 degrees Celsius to minus 86 degrees Celsius. And anywhere along that point, you can actually set the uh, temperature of the freezer, which is rather unique in the industry. And that's what makes this freezers perfect for the temperature needs of the Pfizer vaccine. You think about uh, Antarctica and you think about the average coldest temperature there, it's 50 degrees colder than the average coldest day on Antarctica, just to sort of give you some perspective there. Wow. Like, does it look like a kind of freezer icebox that I would just get if I wanted another freezer in my house or? Yeah, actually, it, it, it is in, in a strange kind of way. We've got three different sizes. 
I, I equate them to this normal household freezer that you would uh, normally have. Um, there's actually a, what I consider is a dorm size freezer that we also have that does ultra cold. And then I've got your beach cooler uh, variety. Um, so those really just are for opposite. snacks and drinks and stuff like that. Uh, snacks, snacks and drinks, and and uh, and vaccines um, because it uh, is a highly portable uh, unit. Uh, that you can plug into a truck uh, and wow. actually, you know, take from a freezer farm and keep things at minus 80 consistently. That is why Dusty's company has been getting calls nonstop. People who want to buy his freezers. And Sterling Ultra Cold has been working really hard to meet that demand. Since the end of March, they've hired 50 more people. And they went from making 30 freezers a day to making 80 freezers a day. But they still can't keep up. It's a real interesting uh, dilemma um, because ultimately our lead times now are roughly about four to six weeks. Um, we we did as much as we could in terms of getting materials in place, but there never seems to be enough. We're getting, to be quite honest, uh, Martine, uh, a lot of reach outs uh, all over the world, uh, which is a, a little mm-hmm. bit different. Most of the stuff that we were getting early on in the process was focused on the U.S., uh, now we're starting to see uh, um, uh, Europe. We're starting to see places uh, that are down in the Caribbean. Uh, Asia Pacific has now started to uh, put some inquiries in. And the the fundamental aspect here is that we've got a certain capacity. Uh, we're, we have certain capability. And those conversations, I think, are productive. But I think the challenge is that everyone is sort of saying, okay, the vaccines are coming and we forgot to plan. uh, So we didn't get our purchase orders in. What can you do? Mm -hmm. And in some cases, in small orders, we're able to do some things. If they're coming in with large orders, it's it's a little bit more difficult. I think there's a little bit of desperation. I I wouldn't say it's an an exacerbated uh, 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 perspective at this point in time. But everyone, of course, wants it tomorrow. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Here's where we are with respect to vaccines. We have a pretty good sense now of the what, courtesy of the manufacturers. We have a pretty good sense of obviously the why. Pretty soon the FDA will give us a sense of the when. Operation Warp Speed has given us a sense of the where, but now it's the how, and that is uniquely the province of states. This is Nirav Shah. He's the director of the state of Maine's Center for Disease Control and Prevention. He talked to me and one of our producers, Lena Muhammad, and he said that they're going to be receiving shipments to six different sites across the state. Five of those sites are hospitals that have the requisite ultra-cold storage capacity in their institutions. And the sixth site is the main CDC warehouse. And who, who like made that decision? Who decided that those hospitals are going to get this vaccine? Well, it was kind of a collaborative decision, and ultimately it was one that we wanted to run by our state's chief executive, Governor Mills. But in practice, the decision sort of revealed itself because there are only a certain number of hospitals 
I suspect in any state, that have both the capabilities as well as the capacity to have ultra-cold storage units as well as the requisite space in order to accommodate them. So it was relatively obvious where these vaccines could go. But when it comes to actually deciding where they should go, they had two goals. To vaccinate with velocity and vaccinate with equity. Meaning their priorities were the speed at which they're vaccinating, but also who they're vaccinating. If my only goal was to vaccinate as many people as possible, and I cared little about where they were, who they were, what their risk was, and whether they had suffered disproportionately, the easy thing to do would be to find the biggest hospital with the biggest freezer in the most populous part of the state and put all of our 12,000 initial doses there. Easy. Velocity accomplished. Our other goal is equity. Equity presents itself by someone's racial or ethnic background, by someone's socioeconomic background, or in the case of Maine, by someone's geographic location. Maine is equal parts an urban state with population centers, but an equally rural state. And so we had to take into account that geographic equity. For that reason, we've actually chosen one of our five original hospitals in the extreme northern part of the state, in Presque Isle, Maine, a hospital called A.R. Gould, that both had the requisite capacity, but also from a geographic equity perspective, is in a part of the state that is extremely rural and underserved. Transporting these boxes is another challenge, especially now with winter coming up. It involves the National Guard, Operation Warp Speed, the Department of Transportation, as well as the state police. If a shipment were on its way, but we felt it was going to get waylaid by a blizzard, one of the good things about being in Maine is that a blizzard doesn't slow us down. Blizzards don't stop us. We keep moving even if there's a snowstorm coming. It may not be in a, it may not be in a pickup truck. It may be uh, in a Department of Transportation snowplow, but it's going to get through. Wait, so you're considering the possibility of transporting vaccines via snowplow? It may not be via snowplow, but it may be through a secured snow vehicle. Yep. So the vaccine gets delivered. Pharmacists and healthcare workers actually have it in their freezers. And you would think that the hard part is over. Then there are other challenges that don't get talked about a lot, but in truth are every bit as critical as the things that do get talked a lot about, like IT. Having a strong IT architecture is critical for us knowing who got vaccinated, where they got vaccinated, when they need to come back for their second dose. If we don't have all of that in place on day one, the entire train is going to leave the station and we're not going to be ready. It's not just health departments and hospitals who will be administering these vaccines. Also, chain pharmacies like CVS and Walgreens. I can tell you that I've definitely had dreams every night for the last couple of months just to make sure that we have vaccine uh, available. And it's, um, you know, I think what makes me feel better about the entire situation is that we have 27,000 pharmacists that are ready to go. This is Rena Shaw. She leads pharmacy operations and services at Walgreens. We have 9,000 locations, and because of that presence, uh, we touch every community across America. I mean, all the way from Alaska to Hawaii, Puerto Rico, um, every, er, all of our pharmacists pretty much live in a lot of the communities that we serve. And so what we've been able to do is identify 
if we had to pick a subset, where would we have the most amount of access? And then if we needed to, we can then have our pharmacists travel based on where they needed to go. So we've identified a subset of that of, of our pharmacies to have the initial allotment of vaccine. And that is exactly why Walgreens, along with CVS, were brought in to get the vaccine to places like nursing homes. One of the key relationships we currently have is with our partner for America with long-term care facilities. And we do have a history of administering flu and pneumonia vaccinations and even shingles at long-term care facilities. And so because of that already established relationship and the services we've provided When the ask came to the pharmacy providers who can help support that, we raised our hand and said, this is something that we do feel confident that we'd be able to support. Serena is talking about getting vaccinations to staff and residents of long-term care facilities. That's a category that a CDC advisory board recommended should receive this first wave of vaccines. But it's a different process than just stopping by a local Walgreens to get your flu shot. For places like nursing homes, Walgreens actually has to set up vaccination clinics within the building. The first step is is that we are there's a, there is some administrative Uh, work that needs to happen in advance, meaning setting up the clinic, making sure that the residents and the the staff that are there complete the paperwork and they're eligible for the vaccine. There's no side effects that we need or contraindications we have to worry about. All of that happens in advance of the clinic. We are not only scheduling that first clinic, but we're also scheduling the follow-up second clinic to ensure that our the patients and the staff there receive both doses. And this is across, right now, we have around over 27,000 clinics or facilities that have signed up with us. And so we're in the midst of reaching out to these facilities, getting all of the prep work completed, scheduling that first and second clinic, and even possibly a third one as a follow-up in case someone missed a clinic, and then ensuring that patients received the complete series. So this whole process is complicated, and it has so many moving parts. But even if all of those things go off without a hitch, it's not like we're just done with COVID now. I'm also curious, like, how are you feeling, right? Not as, you know, the director of the CDC in Maine, but like, you know, you as Dr. Shaw, like, how are you feeling? You know, I'm an optimist at heart, and I don't believe you can survive or thrive in a job like mine at a, in a time period like this without being an optimist. If you're someone who doesn't think or doesn't have faith that the world tomorrow will be better than today, well, it's hard to get through a pandemic. And so I'm, I am forever optimistic. But at the same time, I try to temper the optimism I have with a dose of reality for folks. Although a vaccine we believe is on its way and we hope a vaccine is authorized and we believe and hope that we are ready to vaccinate large numbers of folks in Maine, that won't end the pandemic overnight. Even when we reach a various critical threshold of individuals in the state who need to be vaccinated to achieve requisite levels of immunity, that won't mean that COVID-19 disappears overnight. The epidemiology around how and when pandemics end is, uh, it reveals some interesting findings. Pandemics don't end overnight. They don't end with a bang. They end with a whimper. And to me, it's, it's a lot like a speeding train going down the tracks. 
the train's got a lot of momentum behind it. And even if the train encounters a significant uphill, it doesn't just stop. It still keeps going uphill. That's what it's going to be like with respect to COVID-19. Even after we achieve 60 or 70% vaccination rates across the population, there are still going to be high numbers of cases of COVID-19. They may be slowing down every day, but the notion that a pandemic will be an off switch that just shuts off the pandemic, that's unfortunately not the epidemiological reality. This story was produced by me and Post Reports producer Lena Muhammad. Thank you to Harry Geem, Tanya Alcorn, Nirav Shah, Larry St. Ange, Dusty Tenney, and Rena Shaw. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Tomorrow, we have a powerful story about policing and what can go wrong when police respond to mental health crises. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 